All right, well, I would like to introduce uh, Rock LaJoya, who will be presenting God's Word to us today. Thank you, Rock. I invite you to turn in uh, Philippians chapter 3, and Happy New Year to each of you. Philippians chapter 3. If anybody has a pew Bible, what page would that be? Philippians chapter 3. Years ago, about 100 years ago, when I was uh, uh, a new believer in Christ, I attended my first church, and of course I didn't know a whole lot about the Bible yet. I mean, Old Testament, New Testament, that was news to me. So I remember sitting in this Bible study as a brand new Christian... And uh, the teacher said, turn to Philippians. I was flipping around. I didn't know where it was. And the lady next to me, she was sitting next to me, looked at me, and she said, go eat popcorn. I beg your pardon. Go eat popcorn. I didn't get it. Well, she said, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Go eat popcorn. It was a little mnemonic device, as they call it, memory device. Apparently it worked. I still remember it all these years later. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Philippians chapter 3. What page number is that for those who are maybe new? 637? Okay, thank you. 637 in your pew Bible anyway. Philippians chapter 3. Let's take a moment and speak to the author of this book, shall we? Lord God, we want to thank you for breathing out this portion of Scripture. And I pray that you would give each of us a teachable spirit... I ask also, Lord, that as your word permeates our hearts and minds, that it would have its effect by means of the power of your spirit. And we do ask, dear God, that as a result of being here, you would be pleased as we worship you with our hearts and minds. But beyond that, that fruit would be born in our lives, and that perhaps some would come to faith in Jesus, and others, brothers and sisters, would be encouraged as we uh, share with them what we have learned. And so guide us into your truth, keep us from error, and I pray, dear God, that your will would be accomplished for each of us here on the first day of the year. And we do pray, dear God, as we think ahead to this fresh new year you have granted us, for however many days we have, that you would give us a heavenly perspective about uh, things that we observe, the situation we might be in, the things that might come our way this year. Those are all in your hand. You know in advance, we don't. And so we pray that you would use even this time to give us your heavenly perspective. We pray this in the mighty and matchless name of Jesus. And all my brothers and sisters said, Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. You know, our perspective on life really is crucial. As I'm thinking about, we're heading into a new year. Uh, It's important that we are tracking with the Lord. You know, the Lord created everything we see, everything we know. He created us. And he has his perspective, a heavenly perspective, for lack of a better word on how this world works, and we need that as well. As we go into the new year, maybe this is a time for a tune-up to make sure that our perspective is lined up with his and not so much lined up with the world. And uh, Kent Hughes recounts the story of Jorge Rodriguez. Here was a man who gained notoriety as as a bank robber. That was his reputation. He was an effective bank robber, if I can put it that way. And he robbed banks uh, along the borders of Texas and Mexico, and uh, he was good at it. So good that uh, his daring daylight heists forced the Texas Rangers to beef up their staff, if you will, because they were trying to hunt him down. And so they assigned extra Rangers all along the Rio Grande there, the Texas-Mexican border, trying to hunt him down. Well, within a few days, one of the Rangers tracking Rodriguez... 
uh, followed him into a Mexican village cantina, and he slipped behind him, and the ranger put a pistol to his head, and he said this, I know who you are, Jorge Rodriguez, and I have come to get back all the money you have stolen from the banks in Texas. Give it to me, or I'm going to pull the trigger. Well, silence followed. Tension mounted. You see, Rodriguez did not speak a lick of English, and the ranger did not know a word in Spanish. So it was kind of a standoff. Well, somebody heard this and observed it. Uh, It was a man who was dressed very well and uh, looked like a dignified, well-dressed patron. And he came over and said to the ranger, I'm bilingual. Shall I act as a translator? The ranger nodded and said, yeah, go ahead, talk to him and tell him what's up here. He's got to know this means something, right? And so Rodriguez began to talk to him and he stammered, Tell the big Texas ranger that I have not spent a cent of the money. And if he will go to the town well, face north, count down five stones, he will find a loose stone. If he pulls it out, he will find all the money. Please tell him quickly. Well, the translator did his job and he explained what he heard. We would expect, but no, no. That's not what happened. You see, the translator paused and thought about all this, and he collected his thoughts. And he assumed a very solemn look, and he turned to the ranger and said, Jorge Rodriguez says that he is a brave man. He says he's ready to die. Now, if you think about it, this man, the translator, had ulterior motives, did he not? In fact, I would argue he had a worldly perspective. And the reason I would say that is because this man was willing to obstruct justice, which is not a good thing. He was willing to steal what was not his. And he was willing to facilitate a killing. You see, he thought he could take this money for himself. That's a worldly perspective. Very horizontal. Now, imagine the same situation, but this time the translator is a born-again Christian who fears God. Would he respond to that situation in the same way? I doubt it. You see, he's got a different perspective on life. He would do what he said he was going to do, which he would just translate and tell the ranger exactly, precisely what was said. How would you have responded in a situation like that? You see, there is that temptation there. Hey, nobody's going to know. I could pocket this money and nobody's going to know about it. But Paul tells us, if you want to write it down in your notes, in uh, Colossians 3, 2, he says, Set your mind on the things above, not on the things on earth. That's actually a command. Is that one that we receive as a command and even attempt to obey? Is my mind set on the things above? Or is it set on the things of the earth? You see, an earthly perspective causes us to love all of the world's values and our selfish desires more than God's commands. And there's a big difference between these two perspectives. We're going to learn in this text this morning that true believers view their lives from a heavenly perspective. True believers view their lives from a heavenly perspective. Do you have a heavenly perspective? You say, well, 
I need to think about that. Are there any indicators? Is there some criteria I can look at to determine whether or not I do have a heavenly perspective? Great questions. And we do have some answers here in the text. We're going to see three indicators of a heavenly perspective as we walk through this particular text. And here's the first indicator. You'll see it right away in the text. And that is true believers place their confidence in Christ and not their achievements. True believers place their confidence in Christ and not their achievements. Now, if you look at the text, notice I'm in uh, chapter 3 of Philippians, verse 1. Paul says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. So immediately in verse 1, we see an imperative, a command. He says, rejoice in the Lord. Paraphrased, find your chief joy in the Lord. This first day of the year, could you honestly say that Jesus Christ is the chief joy of my life? He should be, and if he's not, then obviously we need to readjust our worldview, don't we? And our perspective. Anything we enjoy, my friends, anyone we enjoy, many of us were with family over the holidays, who created these family members? Who created these things we enjoy? Who allowed us to have access to these things and enjoy them? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, we wouldn't be here without him, right? So he has to be, just logically, let alone from the scriptures, he has to be primo in our lives, right? He has to be our number one. And he is the cement of all healthy relationships, including the marital relationship. And so he's saying, make sure that Jesus Christ is the chief joy of your life. And so do I embrace his love for me? And do I daily submit to his lordship? Well, I'm going to be honest, I'm too weak. I don't do that. Sometimes I'm tempted. And Well, if weakness, spiritual weakness or lethargy or anemia is the problem, here's a verse to write down, Nehemiah 8.10. Nehemiah 8.10 says, The joy of the Lord is your strength. You want to be strong? Rejoice in the Lord. Now, there are times when we don't feel like rejoicing in the Lord. Let's be honest, right? And if we can train our minds at the beginning of the year that every time we don't feel like praising the Lord, that's the alarm clock that goes off that tells us it's time to praise the Lord. So that I'm not a slave to my emotions, but rather... I do what's the right thing to do in the circumstance. And if I do that long enough, guess what? The emotions will follow suit. I don't want to live for my emotions. God created emotions. They're a great thing. I'm not knocking them at all. But there are some things that are more important than emotions. And one thing is doing what the Lord commands us to do. Why is it he gives us a command? You know, honestly, I would think that we would want to praise the Lord. He's been so awesome to all of us. Why do I need a command? Because the Lord knows our hearts. And he knows our hearts grow cold and sometimes we don't appreciate the blessings we have. You know, the problem is the Lord is so faithfully consistent like clockwork that sometimes we dupe ourselves into thinking this is how it's supposed to be. And this is entitled to us. And all we got to do is travel around the world and realize just how blessed we are. Praise the Lord. Treat, treat him as the chief joy of your life. And if, if our perspective is accurate, if we do have a heavenly perspective, then this is something that will come natural. It will just ooze out of us. We'll want to praise the Lord. 
He says to write the same things again, it's not a problem for me. This is a ministry of reminder. Paul's about to repeat teaching already familiar to the Philippians. But if you're like me, I need to hear it again and again and again. He says, I'm doing this for your good. In fact, this is a safeguard for you. I care about you, he's telling the Philippians. Safeguard from what? Well, we're going to see in the context in a moment that his teaching was a safeguard against the false teaching of the Judaizers. Who are they? Well, these Judaizers were professing Jewish believers who were trying to impose on these Gentile believers here in Philippi the keeping of Jewish fasts, holy days, traditions, etc., etc. In other words, you need to jump through all these religious hoops. I'm glad you know Jesus, but you need Jesus plus. Beware of Jesus plus. It's not good math. Jesus alone is sufficient for us. You need Jesus plus, jump through these hoops, and then you'll be fine. And Paul's saying, I want to safeguard you against that erroneous teaching. This false teaching majored on the externals, and it fostered pride in personal achievements, which is lethal. If we do enough of these hoops, we tend to think we're okay and we're doing right here. And God needs us for some reason. The Philippians were in danger of finding their chief joy in themselves and their achievements instead of in the Lord. And that's a dangerous place to be, and it's subtle. Because the things we're engaged in can all be good things extensively. If you think about it, you know, feeding the poor, praying, on and on that list goes. All good stuff. But that's not where our joy comes from. In fact, if anything, that should flow out from our joy as a result thereof. Look at verse 2. Strong language here. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evildoers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. You say, wow, that's not really PC. We don't call people dogs. Now, that word only occurs one time in the New Testament. Unless you think Paul made it up and it's original with him, he's actually using the word of the Judaizers. See, the Judaizers looked at the Gentiles, i.e. the non-Jews, and said, look at those unclean dogs over there. What do they know about our God? You see, so anybody who was a Gentile and not part of the covenant community was considered unclean, i.e. a dog. And we're not talking about a nice pet dog. These are scavengers with rabies and all kinds of diseases on the, on the streets there. You know, these are undesirable. Beware of those dogs. So Paul is using their word. And uh, you see, these believing Gentiles in Philippi were really new members of the new covenant community. So although the Judaizers might say, you're not part of the covenant community, they're part of the new covenant, which Jesus established, right, in the upper room. And so Paul turns the tables on the Judaizers, and they now are the unclean dogs who are outsiders because they're placing their confidence in their own achievements and not in the Lord Jesus Christ. He gets stronger. He says, beware, verse 2, of the evil workers. He's not referring to genuine good works, but rather, as one scholar puts it, the Judaizers were earthly-minded, false brothers, whose teaching led to the works of the flesh. We said that true believers view their lives from a heavenly perspective. These Judaizers are viewing their lives from an earthly perspective, and Paul is concerned that they influence in a bad way these beloved Philippian believers. He says, beware of the false circumcision. 
And now here he's using a word, literally the mutilation, which is something other than circumcision. Uh, It's when the body is cut and the the Mosaic law forbids such a thing. So at this point, he's denigrating uh, what, what they are teaching. True circumcision, or at least the one in the Old Testament, uh, was an emblem of faith. But tragically, these Judaizers turned this uh, circumcision into a mere adherence to an external rite. In other words, one more religious achievement. Again, here's another hoop to jump through. One more thing so that you can have right standing with God. He says, by contrast, verse 3, For we are the true circumcision. Believers in Christ are members of the new covenant community. Now, he's describing us here. If you know Christ as Savior, you're being described right here, who worship in the Spirit of God. That word worship has the idea of service. Since Christ's coming, the indwelling Spirit now empowers us to offer up acceptable worship. So therefore, when we come to worship, even in this setting, we're not doing this in the flesh. You see, the jury's always out when we come to worship. Just because we sing the songs and hear the sermon and do all the things that we do on a Sunday doesn't necessarily guarantee that God receives it, right? But if it's Spirit-empowered, He receives it. If the motive is right and it's done by faith and we're relying on the Spirit of God, this is music to God's ears. This is a sweet, fragrant smell and aroma to His nostrils. He loves it when our hearts are where they need to be. And so he says, further, who put no confidence in the flesh. The Judaizers did put their confidence in their achievements, but true believers place their confidence in Christ, not at all in their achievements. Verse 4. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more, and here's his credentials now, circumcised the eighth day, of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. Wow. You see, because these Judaizers appealed to their heritage and their achievements, Paul now reluctantly is choosing to do the same. He is not boasting. There's no pride here. In fact, he's making a strong point that these things that they're resting on are crutches with holes in them. They're going to collapse. And so, look at the list here. Uh, It's really interesting because he's showing the spiritual bankruptcy. He says, you know, they're doing all this stuff and they're bragging about it. If I were to do the same, and I really don't want to, but if I'm going to speak their language, I can boast far more than them. If personal achievement wins approval with God that I could boast of greater achievements than these Judaizers. So, for example, circumcised the eighth day. That tells us that Saul, when he was young, as a baby, was raised in a home that honored the Scriptures. He says, I'm of the nation of Israel. So he's not a a Gentile convert. He's a pure blood, if you will. Of the particular tribe, now notice, count them, Sesame Street. Five and five is ten plus two. Ten plus two is... Math test, help me out. I'm a Bible teacher. I'm not a mathematician. Twelve, thank you. There were twelve tribes. Two in the north. Judah, Benjamin, and those two, relatively speaking, were better or more obedient, if you will, than the other tribes. Along with Judah, Benjamin was the only tribe faithful to the throne of David. In other words, Benjamin was a tribe with a very good reputation. The first king of Israel came out of Benjamin, King Saul. 
It could be, we don't know, but it could be that Saul, i.e. Paul, was named after King Saul. He's from the same tribe, from Benjamin. It's a great tribe, great credential to have. A Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm not a Hellenistic Jew. I remain untainted by the pagan Greek culture. As to the law, I'm a Pharisee. Now, let me stop here and say this. As soon as we hear Pharisee, we think negative. Let me give a little plug for the Pharisees. They deserve a plug once in a while. I suppose that if we were back in the first century, us as evangelicals, we probably would fit in best with the Pharisees. What we have in common with them is this. They've got problems, I understand, but out of all the various Sadducees, which were kind of liberal, and all the various stripes that were there, uh, the Pharisees were people of the book. We are known as people of the book. These are the ones who knew their Bible. And this would be impressive because Saul is saying, I was a Pharisee. Saul, now Paul. And this should have greatly impressed the Judaizers because, yeah, he's from that stripe that really knows the Bible. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. You might want to write down Galatians chapter 1, verse 13. He says there, I used to persecute intensely the church of God and try to destroy it. You see, this is Saul's zeal for God. It was recognized by the Jewish leaders who commissioned him and said, you know what? You go out there and eradicate those cultic Christians. Go, Saul, go get them. So he was highly regarded by the religious leaders of the day. And so this would be a bragging point. They should receive this well, the Judaizers. He viewed his life when he was Saul from an earthly perspective. But after receiving Christ, Saul, now Paul, views his life from a heavenly perspective, the same perspective we want to have as we go into the new year ahead, tracking with how God sees things. As to righteousness, verse 6, which is in the law, found blameless. One scholar puts it like this. Anyone interested could have, quote, checked the record and found that Paul had never been charged with transgressing the law. In other words, Paul was a success in the eyes of Judaism. But, remember, <clears throat> true believers place their confidence in Christ and not their achievement. And so, look at verse 7. He says, But whatever things were gained to me, all those things I listed and more, those things I have counted, reckoned, it's a accounting phrase, as loss for the sake of Christ. From his earthly perspective, all of Saul's achievements in Judaism were considered gain. They would be on the asset side of the ledger. Credit. And he's saying now, from a heavenly perspective, I'm converted. I love Jesus. I'm Paul now. I see my achievements as loss, liabilities, debits. So in verse 8, he says, More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. So not only am I counting them as loss, I actually gave these things up and count them but rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. Paul took inventory of all of his achievements he once thought were gain. Further, he considers all the things achieved in the flesh. He compares them with the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ. And they all lose their value. And whatever those things are, 
Whatever things we cling to, count on it. At some point, we have to give them up anyway. Some people spend their lives banging their head against a brick wall, trying to accumulate, accumulate, accumulate at great cost to their family, to their health, to their mental sanity. And they get all that stuff and it drives them crazy. And then they got to turn it over and give it up anyway. It's insanity. One thing you can never lose, one thing that never rusts, one thing that never tarnishes, one thing that nobody can steal from you is Jesus Christ living in you, the hope of glory, the Lord Jesus Christ. No matter what is stripped away from you, health, wealth, clothes, house, cars, everything, you will never lose Jesus Christ. If you're in a corner eating a piece of bread in a jail cell, you still have Jesus Christ with whom you can fellowship and speak. Nobody can take Christ from you. Do you have him? Do you know him? Don't begin a new year without him. Paul was radically transformed by this loving person, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He says, notice, I count them all but rubbish, literally dung. They are reprehensible to me. Compared with knowing Christ, all my past achievements are worthless. Verse 9. And may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, derived from the law. He just said he obeyed the law, and he did it better than anybody. But that's not what it's about. But that which is through faith in the person of Jesus Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. And so through great legalistic effort and exertion, Saul thought he had achieved a righteousness of his own. People applauded him. He was up on the pedestal, a religious leader. But Paul, in his right mind, in Christ, now counts his past achievements as loss, and he identifies his real gain. What is it? A couple million shekels? Gold-plated chariot? A franchise with pita bread? A sandal industry? None of the above. He says it right there. You'll see it. Verse 9. Here's my treasure. Here's my real gain. This is what's on the liability side, or on the uh, asset side of the sheet, the plus column. The righteousness which comes only, I'm adding, from God. Theologians call it imputed righteousness, credited righteousness, justification. It's God, when you receive Christ, he puts on his glasses And there's crosses on the lens, and he sees you in Christ. He doesn't see your sin. That's been paid for by Christ. He sees you in Christ. That's your position. Unchangeable. This is the game. It's the righteousness of Christ which comes, he says, through faith in Jesus Christ. So Paul, in essence, then, transfers his confidence in self-achievement onto Christ's achievement on the cross on his behalf. It's something we cannot earn. It's something we can only, in faith and humility, receive. And so if you have a choice between, when you die, going up to heaven and saying, Lord, would you let me into heaven? Here's my righteousness. That's one possibility. Or, here's Christ's righteousness. Which is the better option, do you think? This one, right? This is sin, not this one. If I'm the most religious person in the world, I'm still falling short of the standard, which is Christ. But if I have Christ living in me, I get the free gift of his righteousness, and that's what gets me into heaven. No other thing. God set this up. This is the way he 
has uh, designed it in his divine economy. And so what we're seeing here is that true believers place their confidence in Christ. And so what are you resting on? What is giving you assurance? What are you trusting in to assure that you have right standing with God? And the list is long. Am I trusting in the fact that I help people who are in need? Praise the Lord. Keep it going. That's a great thing. But that's not going to give us right standing with God. Our our prayer life, our involvement at church, you know, the list goes on and on and on. Uh, Our status, uh, my dad is a very popular person. My grandfather was the who's who and whatever. None of those things give us right standing with God. Well, then how do you get right standing with God? John says in one twelve, But as many as received Christ, to them he gave the right to become somebody. To become whom? To become children of God. Who are these people? Even those who believe on his name. It's back to believing. There's nothing I can contribute. As soon as I start to pay for it, it's no longer a gift. It's now merchandise that I just paid for. And that will not get me to heaven. It's the only way. It's very humbling, isn't it? I have nothing to contribute, nothing to commend myself to this awesome God. I have to cling to the, Christ, to the cross and the righteousness of Jesus Christ. True believers view their lives a heavenly perspective. Well, then what are the indicators that I have a heavenly perspective? We've seen one already. True believers place their confidence in Christ and not in their achievements. Here's another indicator. And that is, true believers place their confidence in Christ's sanctifying power. True believers place their confidence in Christ's sanctifying power. Uh, That word means to set apart. As soon as we receive Christ, we are plucked out of the world and set apart unto service for Him. That's positional. That doesn't change. And then there is the daily sanctification of becoming more like Christ. He says, look at verse 10, it's a beautiful verse. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. He says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Saul placed his confidence in his flesh, but Paul, knowing Christ, placed his confidence in Christ's sanctifying power. If I'm going to become more like Jesus, and that's the goal of all of us, seems to me I'm going to need some help. There's no way I'm going to pull this off. And this is the power, supernatural power, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. That's the power that lives in you, Christian. So if the Spirit of God lives in you, how much power is residing in you? 10 million gallons? 80 million gallons? The number is infinite. So there's unlimited power residing in us in the person of the indwelling Holy Spirit. And so this is the point. Paul is relying on Christ to do his work through him. A couple verses for you to write down. Romans 6, 4, and then also uh, Romans 8, 29. In 6, 4, Paul says, As Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so too we, that's us, might walk... In newness of life. Sounds like when I'm walking with Christ day to day, I'm being empowered to do so. 
assuming I'm relying intentionally upon his power. Don't leave home without him. In fact, you can't. But intentionally rely on his power to work through you. Uh, Romans 8.29 For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become, hear this, conformed to the image of whom? His Son. That's a good definition of sanctification. Are you being conformed to the image of God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ? That's the sanctification process. That should be going onward and upward all throughout this new year ahead, God willing. Unless he returns and takes us out of this place, which would be pretty nice, wouldn't it? Yeah. And so sanctification is the process of becoming more like Christ... And so is the power of Christ evident in your life? Would those who know you best say, yeah, there's something supernatural about this person? And we're going to talk in a minute about what that looks like. But notice, there's another side to this, and Christians tend to skip over this piece. And we can't, because it's important. Look at verse 10. He says, and the fellowship of his sufferings. See, we like the resurrection part, right? But how do you have a resurrection without a death? A resurrection presupposes a death. In the context here, a cross. Now for us, we cannot contribute to what Christ did on the cross. That's not what he's saying. Christ's work on the cross was perfect in every way, and there's nothing we can add to it. But on the other hand, what this is saying is there's a sense in which we are called to suffer. And I know this is not popular, but it's true. And so we need to embrace it. This involves our daily battle with sin and with Satan, with the flesh, with the world. When we dare to live for Christ, here's the good news. He will use our suffering to conform us to his image. And go to the countries where the heat is on. And honestly, some of these brothers and sisters put us to shame. And the reason is... They're in the fire, and they they are forced to sift through life and say, what's most important here? Is it the stuff and all the trappings, or is it my Lord? And they make a decision that it's my Lord, and sometimes there's a price to pay. Now, for us, in our culture, where it's a bit more mild, relatively speaking, as soon as we step out in a public square and start sharing our faith, all of a sudden the thermostat goes up. Have you noticed? The heat is on. There's something about the name of Jesus that bends people's noses out of shape. I don't know why that is, unless there's some spiritual dynamic taking place there. Because we can name all kinds of religious leaders, and they'll tolerate that, but you name the name of Jesus and see what happens in some context. So there's a form right there of suffering, at least whatever bad reputation or being misunderstood or whatever. It also involves identifying with Christ and seeing sin as he sees it to the point where we weep. When we see people we know who choose not to worship him. Or people who are on death's door who don't know Christ and may be ushered into a Christless eternity. And that breaks our hearts. That's a form of suffering as well. Now, what I want to do is turn with you. Keep your place, though, but turn back to Galatians. Remember, go eat popcorn. Galatians, Ephesians. Galatians chapter 5. You may want to have some popcorn for lunch. It's not a bad idea, but we're talking about something else here. Galatians 5, and here's our inventory right here. How am I doing? Do I have this heavenly perspective? Well, he doesn't leave us guessing. Look at 5.2, Galatians. 
But the fruit of the Spirit is, here's the inventory, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now, those who belong to Christ Jesus, notice, have crucified, notice the word there, the flesh with its passions and desires. And so, what does that mean? It doesn't mean literally we're going to hang on a cross. What that means is, and the Puritans used to talk about this a lot, starve the flesh, feed the spirit, kill the flesh, vivify the spirit. You know and I know there are certain things we should not be involved in. There are certain things that are going to corrupt us and defile us and pull us away from Christ. Yet there are certain activities and things we should be embracing that promote Christ-likeness, correct? And so that means there's going to be some form of self-denial. When your flesh says, oh, wouldn't you like to have this? You say, the better you, says, absolutely not. In fact, I'd rather do this, because that's a cheap substitute for this. This is the one that brings satisfying joy. That doesn't. That's always an empty promise, right? So that's a form of, if you want to call it, suffering or sacrifice. And then good old-fashioned speaking to the Lord every day in prayer, keeping short accounts, confessing our sin to Him, right? Uh, Ingesting the Word of God. And what I mean by that is more than just uh, having our devotions, which we should do. Devotions, we keep in touch with the Lord, right? It might be a verse or a passage here. But I would challenge all of you. We've got 66 books in the Bible. Is there one book... If you were on a desert island and you had to read one Bible book, what would it be? Oh, I would love to spend time in Revelation. I'd love to spend time in the Psalms. I want to get to know Genesis better. I'm actually curious about Deuteronomy. I'd like to know more about the book of Ruth. All right, well, here you are at the beginning of the year. My challenge to you is adopt one of those books, and you become the resident expert in that. I wish I could assign 66 people a book each. So if somebody comes up to me when I'm here and they say, Hey, Prof, uh, it says in Leviticus about so-and-so. I can say, go to Dan. He's been studying Leviticus for a year. He's the resident expert. He can tell you everything you want to know about that book. So what I'm arguing for then is have your daily devotions, and those are generally microscopic, but then I'm arguing for the telescopic or macro view of the Bible so that I can see the overall story of God from creation all the way to the consummation until Christ comes back. It's good to have both perspectives, right? Get on a helicopter and look at the whole forest and then come back down and look at the bark on the maple tree. We need both. And so that helps us then to draw closer to the Lord. Finally, go to Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. Galatians 2.20. There's the word again, I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live. So that kills the flesh right there. Well, if it's not me, who is it? But Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. That's the operative principle there. In the Son of God, who loved me and delivered himself up for me. You can go back to Philippians. So Paul is saying, if you see anything good in me, you got to know it's the indwelling Christ living it out through me. It's not stuff I do for God. It's rather him living the Christian life through me. It has not a lot to do with my ability, but it has a lot more to do with my availability. Am I available? Allow him to empower me and work through me so that he can mold me into his image. It's usually better when we're on the move rather than stationary. 
So what are we saying here? We're saying that true believers view their lives from a heavenly perspective. And we're asking, what are some indicators that will determine whether or not I have a heavenly perspective as I march into a new year? We've seen one. True believers place their confidence in Christ, not their achievements. A second indicator, true believers place their confidence in Christ's sanctifying power. And here's the third indicator. True believers place their confidence in their future glorification. You've got a good future ahead. Cheer up. True believers place their confidence in their future glorification. Coming soon, we hope. Look at verse 11. In order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. He's keying off of that phrase there, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. Why? In order that, this is the goal of his sufferings, that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Write it down, Romans 8.17. Paul writes, Romans 8.17, We suffer with him so that, so that what, Paul? Why are we suffering with the Lord? So that we may also be glorified with him. And so the culmination of every Christian's journey is their physical resurrection translation. Let me explain that. Let me translate, if I can. This is going to occur on the rapture day. When is the rapture day coming? I do not know. Nobody knows. The Lord knows. Could be any time. Could be today. Could be tomorrow. I don't see anything prohibiting it. But on the rapture day, let's just suppose it's going to happen at, uh, let's say, 1 p.m. today. Assuming we're all going to be alive at 1 p.m. What's going to happen for us is we're going to be translated. We're not going to be resurrected because we're alive. So we will meet the Lord in the air and we are given new bodies, resurrected bodies, if you want to call it that. These are spiritual bodies, basically. But for our dead loved ones, maybe our aunt, our uncle who knew the Lord, who are dead right now, and it occurs at 1 p.m. today, they are resurrected. They're given new bodies. In their case, technically, it is a resurrected body. Ours really is a translated body, but they're similar. That's good news. Now, for those of you who are younger, you're thinking, yeah, sounds okay. But wait till you get a little bit older and you start getting some aches. Hey, older people, are you with me? I'm not 20 anymore. We're not in Kansas anymore either. So the point is this. We got a trade-in model coming. It's going to be incredible. And God is the one who has his fingerprints all over our bodies in that it was created by him in his image. And if you know Christ, the Spirit of God dwells in your body. Jesus chose, of all things, to take on a body. That body has been sanctified. It's sacred. The body is important. It's God's temple. And he said, so my question is, when is the last time you thought about your future glorification? I want to challenge you in the new year to think about it more. You say, well, I'm not really mindful of it. Well, here's a suggestion for you. Turn with me. We're right there anyway in Philippians chapter 3. Look at verse 20. Might be on the next page. I don't know. Uh, Philippians 3, 20 and 21. He says, for our citizenship is in heaven. Now, if that's true and it is, then what's the deal down here? We're aliens, aren't we? Our real home is in heaven. From which also, and here's the part I want you to see, this should be our attitude in the new year. From which, that is heaven, also, we eagerly, see it? Eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you been eager lately? 
These would be good memory verses right here. Put them on your fridge or somewhere. Who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. And so what's going on here is He's saying, you know what? No matter what I face down here, the last part of the story is the best part. I've got something awesome to look forward to. So my... Why not a big chunk of scripture? It's a big percentage of the Bible, which is called prophecy. Why not spend some time studying the future things to come that are going to be ours? Uh, here's a book I would recommend. It's called Evidence for the Rapture by John Hart. That's H-A-R-T, Moody Press book. John F. Hart, H-A-R-T, Evidence of the Rapture. To get our minds on these heavenly things, there's a buoyancy that occurs when we think about our blessed hope. True believers view their lives from a heavenly perspective. What are the indicators? Glad you asked. True believers, first of all, place their confidence in Christ, not their achievements. True believers place their confidence in Christ's sanctifying power. And true believers place their confidence in their future glorification. I heard a while back on the radio, you've heard of uh, John MacArthur, famous preacher from way, way back. Some of you may have heard of him. Um, he was telling a true story about one of his nephews, and I tried to jot it down, and now it's hard to jot down. I don't recommend this. While you're listening to the radio in the car, be careful, all right? My spelling is bad enough, and my handwriting looks terrible, so chicken scratch, right? Here's what he said, best I can get it down. He said, Tim, my wife's sister's son, i.e. his nephew, was a fine young man. He loved the Lord. He was in his college days, and he was working in a market, and a guy came in to hold the market up and shot him dead. The guy was on drugs, and Tim tried to intervene when this guy was getting money from a cashier. Tim tried to protect this lady, and he was killed. And his dad, my brother-in-law, Dwayne, went to the prison with the purpose of sharing the gospel with him and telling him that he forgave him for what he did to his son. And that more important than the death of his son was this guy's death because his son was with Christ. Hard to imagine something like that, but we can at least say that Dwayne had a heavenly perspective. If he didn't have that, he would be in total remorse. He lost his son. It's terrible, no matter how you slice it. But he's thinking of the bigger picture. This is a heavenly perspective. I lost my son, but my son's with Christ. He's doing better than me. But this poor man, if he dies, he will face a Christless eternity. I need to share the gospel with him. I need to let him know he's forgiven. That's a heavenly perspective. It involves looking at the big picture, thinking of others. Do you have a heavenly perspective? You can have one this year if you don't. By some of the things we looked at, and others, Paul is reminding us, and I think at the beginning of this year it is a good reminder, that true believers view their lives from God's perspective, from a heavenly perspective. Amen? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this reminder as you work through the life of the Apostle Paul, and I believe you want to work through our lives. I pray that you would Help us to acquire a heavenly perspective. Help us to see things the way you do. Help us to respond to things that we don't even know what they are yet that are coming our way this year. 
in a way that would honor you and would indicate that we belong to you. I want to thank you, Lord, for your love for us, your watch care through this past year. And we're going to hold your hand tightly this year and trust you all the way through. We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus. And all my brothers and sisters said, Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord.